Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century Podcast, the Hoover Institution Podcast on China, Asia, and the Pacific Century. I'm joined by my co-host, Misha Oslin, fellow at the Hoover Institution. Misha, say hello to everybody and take it away with introducing our great new guest. Hello, everybody. And hello, John. It's been a while since we've been uh, doing this. Every, like everyone, we're taking a, a summer break because I'm, I'm here in the Tidewater where it's in the, the upper 90s and humid and you're out in California where there's wildfires. So we're, we're getting back on track. And to get us back on track, we are thrilled today that we are joined by one of the world's preeminent North Korea specialists. And I, I mean that in all sincerity. And that is Andrei Lankov, whom so many of you who follow the Korea question, know Andre's work. Uh, he is a professor at Kukman University in Seoul, as you know. Uh, he also is the director of the Korea Risk Group. Uh, he is a widely published and, and extensively published author. Uh, some of his books include From Stalin to Kim Il-sung, The Formation of North Korea, uh, Crisis in North Korea, The Failure of Destalinization, North of the DMZ, uh, and the real North Korea, life and politics in the failed Stalinist utopia. Uh, he is one of the most sought after commentators on North Korea, and we are thrilled that he's joining us here. Uh, uh, he's in Seoul, joining us here on the Pacific Century early in the morning in Seoul. Andre, welcome to the Pacific Century. Yes, first, thank you very much for inviting me. Actually, I am occasionally listening to the Pacific Century, even though over the last few months probably it was so hectic. So I'm listening less than I would like. Anyway, it's an honor to participate. And I basically here at your service. Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, we're doing it less than we would like, but that's our fault. So we're, we're glad you're here. We're here and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll start off. I think we should start off maybe with one of your most recent pieces, maybe the most recent, which was a really wonderful article in The Spectator, uh, the UK magazine, which was on uh, Kim Jong Un and what's going on with Kim Jong Un? There's been an enormous amount of speculation about his health, about his grip on power, about potential changes, and you sum them up incredibly well. So let's let's ask the big question: Is it really Kim Jong Un, or is it a body double? What's going on with Kim Jong Un? First of all, all this talk about Kim Jong Un being not really a Kim Jong Un, I have never taken it seriously. You might be, you probably remember, then say seven years ago, eight years ago, it was very fashionable to say that Kim Jong Un is basically a stooge, and the country is run by the top bureaucrats from the organization and guidance department. And back then, I think everybody has forgotten about all these talks because if, if subsequent developments demonstrated it was not the case, yes. Kim Jong-un is still much in control, but obviously we are probably going to have serious troubles uh, because there are bad signs about Kim Jong-un, about his health. A lot of signs. Combined, I'm pretty sure, uh, if we look at a kind of general picture, I'm pretty sure that Kim Jong-un is having serious health issues. So you think it's real that he is having health issues? This is not something made up. Uh, I, yes. Uh, ba basically, let's have uh, let's have a look at the situation. First of all, he suddenly disappeared 
on uh, in mid-April. On the 11th of April, he was presiding over a pretty regular meeting uh, last year. And then it was expected that he would take part in a, in a ceremony to commemorate the birthday of his grandfather and the founding father of the North Korean state, Kim Il-sung. Uh, so, actually, he, uh, his grand, uh, it was uh, Russian generals who established the North Korean state, but it's not what is widely believed in North Korea. So, officially, it's his well, grandfather. The Russian generals have done a lot that they don't get credit for by history. Absolutely. I think the real founding father of North Korean state is General Shtykov, but anyway. This uh, whose, whose family I used to have quite good relations. Having said that, uh, so um, this uh, it was a bit like you know it's a major ceremony, it's a major political holiday in North Korea. Absence of the current leader, it's a bit like you know U.S. president not making an address on the Independence Day, and to everybody's surprise, he did not show up. What was even more interesting, there were no flowers presented by Kim Jong-un on the birthday of the founding father. Most likely explanation that the top elite was in such a mess on that day that they simply forgot to send flowers. Or maybe they were not even sure whether Kim Jong-un would leave to see the next day. At any rate, he disappeared for three months. He appeared occasionally, very occasionally, uh, always in closed meetings, always uh, pictures taken from some special angles, carefully edited. But everybody could see a large mark on his wrist, uh, which was probably a trace of some uh, cardiologic procedure, most people believe it was stenting. It's something which is happening to your coronary artery. Sorry, I, I don't. Uh, I'm not a medical specialist. Yes. Uh, so, uh, for three months, he was completely absent. He appeared, he, well, it was only seven events where he reportedly took part between uh, in uh, mid-April and mid-July last year. All behind the closed doors. Normally, it would be between 40 and 50, judging by the earlier years. And you could see, even on this edited footage, that he obviously had problems with moving. Then, we had a weight issue. Uh, Sorry, I'm not familiar to the American system. Feet and everything, I'm using metric system. Uh, So he is 170 centimeters tall, which is slightly below average, I would say. And he his weight was about 135 to 140 kilos, which means seriously obese. The third stage of... That's, a, like, that's like 300 some pounds. In, yeah, uh, it's, pounds. Uh, it's basically about 300 pounds, slightly below. Serious obesity. He was smoking like a chimney. And according to some stories... Uh, he is drinking. So anyway, so he disappeared for three months. Then he reappeared. And then he disappeared again in May this year. He reappeared. And he was very, he looked strange. He was very, very thin. He lost about 15 to 20 kilos in one month. 
for the Americans, it's about, uh, say, 30, 40 pounds in one month he lost. Uh, maybe some medical conditions, maybe very heavy diet after the last year medical crisis, maybe some surgery, we don't know, some medical kind of treatment against obesity, we don't know. Then he again recently was absent from the public for two weeks. So he began to disappear from the public with increasing frequency. But it's not all. Uh, In January, they had the 8th Congress of the Korean Workers' Party. And this system, uh, and they passed a new party statute. Somebody say, you know, party bylaws. I'm not sure how to translate it into English voice translations. I used a kind of the party constitution, if you like. Let's say party constitution. And it had serious and completely unprecedented change. Unprecedented, not only in Korean history, but in the entire history of the ruling Leninist and Stalinist parties. You mean everywhere? The Soviet Union, the, China, everywhere. Soviet Union, China, Hungary, Germany okay. names it. They did what has always been a complete taboo in such parties. They introduced an office of vice president, very similar to the American office of vice president. Now, North Korean Communist Party, which is called Korean Workers' Party, has the general secretary, who is number one, Kim Jong-un himself. And just below the general secretary, they have the first secretary. The general secretary, essentially president with absolute power, and this first secretary. And the party constitution defines the position of the first secretary as a deputy with full power, deputy of the general secretary. And communist countries have never done it. Because if you appoint somebody as a sort of vice president, you create conditions for replacement of the current leader. Right. So So let me ask you, though, how is this done, do you believe, with his support, or do you believe it's done without his support? It's the rest of the ruling clique coming together to protect their privileges. How, how is, is this a is this a, a cooperative venture or or not? Because as you said, it's unprecedented. I think it's done with, with his, his support. support. Uh, because in any system, because you know he is not known to be nice to his top officials. He pr- he was no. He puts him in front of anti-aircraft uh, guns. Uh, right? no, anti-aircraft gun is not that important, even though he's, it was probably used. It's it's just <laughs> about yes. He's under his rule. The top military and security service leaders suffered a purge. North Korea has not seen since at least 1968, maybe 1958. Because once his grandfather obliterated all people who belonged to different factions, there were four, five factions fighting for the power in North Korea in the 1940s and 1950s, his grandfather won, and he basically sent to the prison or exile or execution ground or to overseas exile leaders, especially military leaders, who did not belong to his faction. And once he's done, his grandfather, and especially his father, 
were remarkably f- for dictators. They were remarkably soft on their henchmen. Uh, because it was interesting peculiarity of the Kim family before Kim Jong-un. If you have in more normally in a dictatorship, the farther from the dictator, the safer. If you are a part of the inner circle, your chances of dying in a torture chamber are unusually high. Uh, but it was not the case with Kim Jong, Kim Il-sung after 1960 and Kim Jong-il. On the contrary, they were remarkably reluctant to kill people whom they happened to know personally. It was not the case with Kim Jong-un. He killed uh, his uh, uncle, or to be more precise, his aunt's husband. He uh, ordered assassination of his half-brother, and he was shooting generals like rabbits in the first few years. Uh, So he is a dangerous man. Uh, for his uh, subordinates, and it means that nobody would dare to suggest some changes unless Kim Jong-un himself has approved it. And frankly, you know what? I respect the guy. Normally, dictators hate to think what will happen to their system, their ruling clique, their country, their nation after their death. He does care. Because so all why, this change, why announce? Yes. I should say, why um, announce it publicly this way? So, um, and this also was curious to me about the so you know the Soviet system too, is if you have a elite, they know what's going to happen. The, the politics are a certain way, uh, but then why do they make a make an important show of changing a constitution, putting out in public, letting everyone know outside the elite what? Uh, what is going to happen? Strictly yeah. speaking, the new constitution was not published in the open access press, but you are right, it's not that important because every party member, which is probably four or five million people, a very large part of the adult population, are aware of the changes. Why? Well, it's interesting. Uh, changes in constitution are about changes of institutional structure. Uh, so, uh, because it's a bit like everybody knows that we are going to have a deputy. So, if something happens to his greatness, Kim Jong Un, there will be somebody to replace him immediately. And it's only one of few changes because they also made another very interesting change within Politburo. They have a small group. Usually, uh, they basically took Chinese system. Uh, they have Politburo. And they have uh, a standing committee of Politburo, about five people, give or take, four, five, six, which is the highest executive body. So every member of the standing committee now has a right to preside over the regular Politburo meeting, which means act as if he or she, it's almost always males, is as if he or she is Kim Jong-un himself. So we have vice president and we have four or five officials who can be sort of like acting vice presidents in case of crisis. It looks like serious preparations for emergency. And it was not all. Did I mention that Kim Jong-un lost weight a lot? Yeah. And when it happened, he was absent for about one, one, one month. And... And he reappeared on public. 
Uh, and uh, on the 28th of July, if I remember correct date, I think it was 28th of July, the North Korean TV broadcast absolutely explosive program. It lasted for 20 seconds. And it was arguably the most explosive 20 seconds broadcast by the North Korean TV in many years. It was a short interview with an unnamed man from the street, a slightly overweight, which is not typical, a man in his probably late 50s from Pyongyang. What did he say? He said that the North Korean public worries about the state of health of Kim Jong-un because he is, sorry, my English, emaciated, correct? Lost so much weight. Emaciated. That he, yes, and people, uh, according to this gentleman who appeared on the North Korean TV, people are in tears. They worry about about the state of health of the leader. It was explosive. So, yeah, so what is your what is your interpretation? So, because the thing I think is hard for us to decipher about North Korea or similar regimes in the past is when they right, when they put something out on TV or they put out a written constitution. Uh, we don't know whether they actually believe it. It's was it propaganda meant to influence what we think? Is it something they're using for their own uh, uh, people? Because there's these regimes, there's no way for them to really contain themselves. Right? There's no, they can't really limit their own power. Kim Jong-un's not, anything he writes down saying, I'm not going to do something. It's hard for us to believe that he actually takes those limits seriously, that uh, you know, it's more about power relationships and less about what the constitution says, which, you know, which is different than the way Western democracies consider their constitutions. In this case, for a change, I would say that the changes in constitution are real. Because they have already prepared a mechanism to be activated if Kim Jong-un is dead or is not capable of running the country anymore. And in order to avoid confusion, both among the general public and the lower elite, it makes sense to have an established mechanism and make sure that everybody is aware who will do what if... Kim Jong-un is going to be dead or incapacitated first. Second, this short interview was a signal. Actually, it has a precedent. In 2008, his father, Kim Jong-il, suffered a stroke. Same scenario, he disappeared for a few months and then appeared visually fragile, with, uh, having big troubles with walking and so on. And you know what? North Korean TV began to show footage of Kim Jong-il, who looked clearly sick, unfirm, infirm, fragile. It was a signal sent to the public, be ready. Our great leader is probably not going to stay with us for long. Be prepared for a change. And immediately they began a massive campaign to promoting his son, that is current leader Kim Jong-un. And right now we can be absolutely certain who will be the next Kim. For a change, it will be a woman, Kim Yo-jong. Because she is extremely active and quite likely she has been secretly appointed the first secretary 
it's a it's i'm not saying it it's a possibility uh because they basically made public the existence of this position but from their publications you cannot guess whether this position is vacant vacant or not or highly likely that kim yojon ambitious decisive power hungry smart woman uh, has already been appointed to this position at any way she is definitely best position to become the next king but what is important they are saying they are doing two things they are creating power transfer mechanism in case of his sudden death they make it public and they also sending signals to the public that something was wrong I even would dare to say, as a matter of fact, I talked to some um, people whose job is to know as much as possible. Let's put it that way. And uh, to my pleasant surprise, these people also have the same ideas. So, uh, Andrei, this is, a, a, that, that's a great yeah. segue then into the U.S. government having talked about the, um, uh, the, the South Korean government and um, Moon Jae-in. So, uh, What is the the take in South Korea about the Biden administration, what their plans are? Uh, what do you foresee happening over the next four years, given that so many of the players currently in office were part of the Obama administration? I would say the official, let's not forget, South Korea is a deeply divided country. The current South Korean administration of President Moon Jae-in is in denial. They understand that they sh- if, they, uh, if they start talking about Kim Jong-un's health issue, it will have a bad impact on the relations with North Korea. And they want to have good relations with North Korea no matter what. So for all this time, they spent uh, a lot of energy. They made a lot of statements claiming that all these signs mean nothing that it's business as usual in Pyongyang. They are not going to discuss this issue with anybody. Maybe very deep in the government circles, there are some discussions. Uh, But on balance, I think that currently it's not widely discussed. And basically, I for those who are not part of the North Korea, of the Korean politics, I would like to emphasize something which is not widely understood by outsiders. Unless you live in Korea, you don't understand it. South Koreans in general don't care much about North Korea. Uh, because in the world media, Korean Peninsula is usually mentioned... Is there any other kind? When North Korea does something... Is there something, any other kind? People tend to believe that South <laughs> Koreans care about North Korea a lot. They don't. For them, it's a very secondary issue. And now you can read the average uh, South Korean newspaper from the first to the fi- last page and find no article out of hundreds of articles uh, dealing with North Korea. Uh, so all these changes, yes, Experts are discussing it. Uh, some people are discussing it, but it's definitely not a part of serious kind of discussion in the country. Partially because the current administration doesn't want to attract attention to this issue, but largely because general Korean public is not that terribly interested in things North Korean. That was actually, Andre. let me ask one last question before Misha wants to get in. I can tell is what, what are the South Koreans that you talk with uh, in the government or not, in the academy and so on, 
What do they think is going on? And what's South Korea doing to prepare for this kind of, you know, maybe sudden transfer of power, some kind of uh, disruption in the governing system in North Korea occasioned by his health or even death? Uh, what they would say, four years of Obama sitting on the fence, uh, paying uh, little attention to North Korea, and hoping that the problem will somehow miraculously solve itself. It's a short answer. Uh, because a longer answer is, look, Donald Trump, due to some reasons, I have no idea why, uh, took North Korea issue very, very seriously. And he was willing to invest a lot of resources, power, influence, oh, money into solving it. How should we address that, Scott? Uh, however, Biden administration is different. They understand yeah, we are. that spectacular solution Mr. Trump used to hope for is not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, because Americans, for the Americans, Solution means denuclearization of North Korea. And as I have been, as I, yours truly, have been saying for 20 years, and I will just repeat, North Korea will never, ever surrender nuclear weapons, period. When I said so 20 years ago, I was called maverick, pessimistic, eccentric Russian. Then I was a a minority Pardon? No, 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 no. There are many others. Don't worry. Uh, then I was um, called minority view. And now I'm not a majority. It's a kind of consensus view. Sometimes I feel a bit offended that very few people mention that I was one of the most, how do you say, noisy uh, supporter of this opinion 20 years ago when it was definitely minority view. Anyway. Uh, sorry, I'm like all academics, I'm ambitious. Uh, but let's go back to the current situation. Uh, so uh, actually, they will never surrender nuclear weapons because they believe, they don't believe in the American promises. And they have good reasons not to believe in the American promises because they remember that the only country in the recent history which uh, basically uh, surrendered is half-baked nuclear program was Libya under Gaddafi. Gaddafi was promised exactly what is promised now to North Korea and ended up being tortured to death by the revolutionary mob. It's not an encouraging example for the North Koreans. They have learned the lesson. Mr. Bolton, Ambassador Bolton, in 2004, wrote in some major newspaper, I think it was Washington Post, I'm not sure, that North Korea should learn Libya lesson. Thank you very much. It's exactly what they did. They followed Mr. Ambassador Bolton's advice. They did learn Libya lesson. Uh, And they don't trust Americans. Uh, They understand that even if Americans promise not to attack them and keep their promise, like Americans have kept promise about Cuba. Americans are not going to help uh, to assist them against the internal rebellion. And if they start machine gunning the popular demonstrations, an intervention is possible. Unless Chinese will save them, which is more likely now than a few years ago. At any rate, they need nuclear weapons. So the only possible solution is to accept North Korea as a de facto nuclear power and 
freeze, make sure that North Korea will freeze its nuclear facilities. Not by promising. Let's not trust their promises. They always cheat. They don't trust Americans with good reasons, but Americans have far less reasons to trust them. Uh, so, so, sorry, I'm cynical, realistic. Right? Is there any other kind? Uh, so, uh, having said that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, you're realistic for sure. Andre, let me let me then uh, ask you because we're we're coming up on the, the the time and we know it's early there and we really appreciate you taking the time to 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 join us. The the one thing that um, we always know is that expect the unexpected from North Korea. If you were advising the Biden administration on what they should expect, an attack, a provocation, a something, what what do you think is likely to happen, if anything? Nothing. Nothing. Right now, it's a good news and bad news. Nothing is going to happen. Uh, because North Korea is unusually dependent on China. Because of sanctions and because of the pandemic, they can survive. They can avoid famine and massive economic disaster only because China is willing to keep them afloat. Because due to current confrontation with the United States, China badly needs a buffer zone. And they are ready to provide North Korea with fuel in violation of the UN Security Council resolutions and humanitarian aid, which do not violate these resolutions. But obviously, China has a condition. Don't behave yourself. Don't do anything, how they say, too noisy. Be quiet. And they have to be quiet. It's a good news. But it's also a bad news. You know why? Because North Korea is quiet, Biden administration is under no pressure to do something. Because North Korea doesn't launch and doesn't test. Biden administration has no reason to deal with North Korea because, as I have said, all possible solutions will be deeply unpopular with the American public. And because the United States is a democracy, The American president and his advisors don't want to do things which are not going to be popular if they are not pressed, pressed, hardly pressed to do it. So they don't want to make a deal with North Korea, the only realistic deal, a bit like Hanoi deal, that is partial denuclearization in exchange for sanctions being lifted and many other concessions. And they are not under pressure to do something unpopular because North Korea is quiet. But it's bad. You know why? Because uh, 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 centrifuges producing HEU, highly enriched uranium, are working 24 hours a day without holidays. Because the engineers are working hard to devise new system which will penetrate American anti-missile defenses. Uh, because they are working hard to make better submarines. And they are going to have submarine-based missiles very soon. They don't make secret of it. And they have been very successful. So they are quiet. But below the surface, very bad developments continue. Their nuclear power, their nuclear and missile potential is increasing. But because of the Chinese pressure, they are not going to attract much attention to it. And it will be very comfortable for any for Biden administration, or for that matter, for any U.S. government to basically pretend that a problem 
which do, does not have an easy and popular solution, quick, easy and popular solution, pretend that this nasty problem does not exist. Well, that is a, I mean, that's a fantastic summing up. Um, and it's interesting because you get each administration comes in and usually announces, you know, that it's going to, to make this a priority. The Trump administration did it. Uh, Obama did it in the very beginning. Of course, there's the Leap Day Agreement. Uh, the Bush administration had six-party talks. Clinton administration had agreed framework. Uh, it, it's it's a you know it's an insoluble problem. Uh, your your realism on North Korea not giving up its weapons has to be something that that most people share. Um, but this insight into the quietness that masks a, a, you know a very aggressive weapons developing program is something that uh, I hope in Washington they will uh, they will heed your warning and, and pay attention to. So, Andre, we know... They will not. We know I we... have enough experience of working with Washington for 20 years. No, they will not. I'm trying. I, well, so that's where you're pessimistic. We hope, uh, I'll say, we hope you're wrong on that, but, but um, certainly given the... Um, the track record. It's hard to see what what is the path forward. Um, but we we've taken up a huge amount of your time, and, and again, early in the morning in Korea, we really appreciate this overview of uh, first of all of Kim Jong Un, his his health, uh, the the really fascinating constitutional changes that you mentioned, this new first secretary, uh, and the deputy position, which is what it is, the role of his uh, sister, um, and we're glad by the way because John and I forgot to bring it up. We're very glad you brought in. China as well to remind us of the key role that Beijing is playing. So uh, on behalf of John, you, uh, I would just like to thank you, Andre Lankov, for joining us today on the Pacific Century. Thanks, Andre. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that's a great interview and great uh, insight on North Korea. But the other big event in Northeast Asia is the holding of the Olympics in Tokyo. And I, I think we should uh, end the show before uh Got some thoughts from Misha about what the Olympics shows about Japan. Now, I'm not going to quiz Misha on the latest Olympic results because I know he would fail, fail terribly about what happened with Simone Biles. You are correct, sir. Why did Naomi Osaka burn out? Uh, but more, you know, we're seeing an Olympics where there's this has got to be the most unusual Olympics in history. There's no one in the stands strict quarantining of people, uh, journalists, fans, athletes. You've had athletes being pulled from competitions. Uh, what is this show about Japan? You, you, even despite the you know, larger, much larger numbers of people who've died in the United States from COVID than Japan, if you had the Olympics in the United States now, I think it would look very different. You would have pack stands. It would look more like a normal Olympics. So I guess... My question is, what went wrong in Japan with COVID that's led to such a weird Olympics on display? Well, uh, I dispute your premise, sir. Uh, I think I think this would have happened almost anywhere. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but uh, the the biggest issue for for any country in a country like Japan that has lagged terribly behind in its vaccine program, but also like. Other countries, uh, you know, in particular Taiwan and and Israel and others, you know, Japan's not that small, but relatively smaller countries that were very careful about protecting its borders. I don't think any of them would have let in fans from around the world, number one. 
Uh, and so I don't think you then could have said, well, we're only going to let Japanese in, or if it were being held in Rio, we're only going to let, um, you know, uh, where is, where is Rio? Brazil? Where is Rio? I've never been to, I've never been to South America. Okay. Brazil, we're we're only going to let Brazilians in. So number one, I'm not sure that any country given the, the, the Delta variant, whatever we're going to call these things now, the Delta variant now sweeping through, uh, through the world, sweeping through, of course, India, sweeping through the UK, sweeping through America. Now, I bet no one would have let fans from around the world in. And again, you wouldn't have been able to just limit it, uh, you know, in some sort of odd xenophobic way to your own country. So I don't think we should be uh, faulting Japan for that. Um, the bigger question, of course, is should the games have gone on at all? And of course, people forget they've already been, they were already postponed for a year. So either you just canceled them outright, which, you know, they didn't, you know, I guess they only did during World War II, right? Is the only time they, they canceled the games, uh, or maybe World War I as well. I don't, you know, I'm not an Olympics historian. Um, but the, the outlay is so extraordinarily enormous for these, for these, countries that, you know, just the hopes of, you know, recouping some of the expenses through the advertising and the sponsorships uh, to just have poured all the money down the drain. Um, the fact that, you know, they had, the, you know, they're building the Olympic Village and they're they're building new venues. And, you know, the last time Tokyo hosted the Olympics, or you look back particularly in 1964, you know, they, they, they re-sculptured huge parts of Tokyo to actually make this happen. So the idea that you're just going to turn off the spigot seems, seems uh, very, uh, very improbable. Um, You know, there are, there are these, you know, serious questions about where Japan is with vaccines. It wanted to make its own vaccine. So it's been behind uh, the the curve, of course, in retrospect, you know, the, the United States, which still hasn't gotten to 70% of all uh, adults vaccinated is doing far better than most of the rest of the world. But even countries where you have the vast majority vaccinated, like Israel, have not been able to, you know, to escape later variants and questions about efficacy of the uh, of the uh, of the vaccinations over over time. So Israel is now starting to report that efficacy seems to be dropping. So, you know, you put all of that together and I really don't think you would have seen anything much different, uh, um, you know, if it were in Japan or if it were in uh, in, you know, in America, um, you still would have had athletes getting sick and dropping out. Uh, you still would have had all sorts of sorts of questions. You know, the Olympics are becoming sort of cursed. You know, you had them in in uh, Russia, where they they were still, you know, they were still making the Olympic Village when the ceremonies were opening. You had them in China, where they basically had to ban car travel so that the athletes could breathe. I mean, you know, the whole idea of uh, the Olympics fitting in in this sort of sense of of showcasing modern uh, industrial civilization is actually running up against very strong limits. And and at some point, I think they're going to be questioning that. For the Japanese, it was to try to show that you know we're going to do what the world's done for an entire year. They kept sports going in the United States with no fans for a year. They kept it going in Europe with no no fans for a year. And I think they decided to go ahead. The one thing they did, they brought in drones. Did you see that drone, that drone display? It was, it, that yeah, was, was like, cool. <laughs> that's how humanity ends, man. Those drones will get sentient <laughs> and they're going to do their thing. And it was pretty incredible. So, you know, if, if you had cheering fans, everyone would have said this was an amazing opening ceremony. Um, but in fact, given what we've seen uh, with empty NFL and MLB uh, and NBA stadiums over the past year, seems pretty much like the new norm to me, John. That's a great way to end it. I hope it's not the new normal, but I, uh, 
I, I found this a weird. I, I've been a big fan of the Olympics, and I find this one the, the strangest one I've ever seen. Um, but maybe we'll get more to that in our next episode. And who knows who our next guest is going to be or where in Asia we're going to turn. But uh, in order to see, I encourage all of you to tune in next time to the next episode of the Pacific Century. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.